double jeopardy, that one. Okay. I want to welcome you all here. It's wonderful to see you all. It's always good to see so many faces out there. And people I haven't seen for a long, long, long time. I can't remember how many years it's... How many years has it been, Annabeth? Six. Six years. So it would have been not long after we actually came to the church here that, uh, that you were on your way. And uh, yeah, it's a wonderful blessing to see you, to see you back, and it's good to see Pastor Frank back and in uh, and in good health. So it's a real praise. We are going to be continuing on our study through the Book of Romans. We're going to be going into Romans chapter three. Um, so I'll, I'll get you to turn there, please. Turn to Romans chapter three. <clears throat> Let's open in a word of prayer first, shall we? Father, we, uh, we thank you for the word of God and we know, dear Lord, that in your word, dear Father, it teaches us the way of life and the way of death, it teaches us how to live life, dear Lord, to the full, it teaches us the predicament of man and the solution of God, it teaches us, dear Lord, so much about the righteousness of God and our state, dear Lord, in our own lives, Father, and Father, I just ask you, dear Lord, that you'll be with us this morning and be with me as I share the word of God with my brothers and sisters here and with any that don't know you, dear Lord. I pray, dear Father, that your spirit would indeed fall upon them, dear Father, that they may come and know the wonderful joy and the truth and the hope that they can have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation is theirs for the asking, dear Father. I pray, dear Lord, please be with us this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. The title, the title of the message, and just before we read the, the text, is Salvation Offered Reveals the Righteousness of God. The salvation that is offered reveals the righteousness of God. Um, this is what I want you to have a look at as we go through the text. When, when we... You have a car that's been manufactured and its condition and its state and its reliability and whether it breaks down or whether it goes on forever, is a reflection of the manufacturer, isn't it? It gives you a, a, a knowledge of that vehicle that you can, you can say, well, that's reliable, and it reveals to you whether or not the manufacturer is trustworthy. You know, we, we see that I've, I've got a, a small business, and, and we're exactly the same. The, the work that um, the men that I employ do on the wall is aesthetic. It's something that you can see with your eyes. And the quality of that work does two things. It reveals to the clients the quality of the craftsmen that have been doing the work, but it also has a reflection upon the company itself that employs them. Makes sense, doesn't it? We also see that in Scripture. We see that with when the Lord speaks about um, being able to identify the quality of the Christian, um, whether or not they are a Christian. You know, he speaks about how the, the tree, the fruit of the tree. If the tree bears thorns and thistles, well, that's not a fig tree. That's a, that's a tree that bears thorns and thistles. Okay, it's the same with, with whether it's a fig tree or not. You can tell the quality of what's there. We, we, we even have, you know, passages in Scripture where you can tell the quality of or the suitability of a pastor reveals by the behaviour of his children. So when Paul's actually instructing Timothy and Titus to, to seek out pastors for themselves, he actually looks at the children. 
which is pretty incredible, and it's and it's uh, it's probably difficult for a lot of a lot of pastors to be able to stomach. You know, and I can understand that. This is the same. What we're looking at is the salvation that God has offered to man reveals the righteousness of God. And that's what I want to have a look at through for this morning's message. We're going to be starting from verse 21 in chapter 3 of Romans. And he says this, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. It's an incredible portion of scripture that reveals to us the righteousness of God as revealed through salvation. And if you have a look at just the two verses prior to that, this is the state that we are left in. It says from verse 19, it says, Now we know what things soever the law saith. It saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's where it's left at verse 20. Could you imagine for a moment that that's where it ended? There was no but now. It actually left you with the knowledge of sin. You now know the state that you're in before a holy God. There's no but now at this point. What are we to do? How are we to move on from this? How are we going to be able to take hold of eternal life? He says, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Paul is making this statement clearly because there were those who thought that they could actually be justified by the law. Man's desire to be justified by the law is really an exercise of futility because that's not the purpose of the law. You understand you can't be justified by that from which you are condemned. I'm not sure if that's, if that's clear. The law is there to identify to you whether or not you've broken it. Okay? You can't be justified by something that sounds an alarm to tell you when you've broken it. Okay? If you've got a border crossing, for example, and there's an alarm put in place, once you cross over that, the alarm sounds. That's what the law does. The Lord sounds out to you to let you know that you've transgressed, that you've trespassed into territory which was not yours to go into. Okay, That's the purpose of the law. That's how it works. 
So how can the law justify a person that's been condemned by it? How can the law speak of innocence to the guilty? How is it possible that the same law which demonstrates a man as unjust can actually declare him just? Paul deals with this a lot in Scripture. We see all of Galatians dealing with this. There's still people today in churches that believe that, yeah, Christ has done this, but I need to now do this. I need to keep the law. Why? How? It doesn't work that way. The law is not there for you to to keep it. We've all broken the law. The Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Scripture says there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And he says here, but by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. We're not just trusting what the text says. The text makes sense. It's logical. It identifies the nature of the law, what its purpose is. And it's to bring you to a knowledge of sin. That's how we finished up with verse 20. That by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, but by the law is the knowledge of sin. He says that that every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God. This situation is serious. This This is where we're left with at verse 20. Every man and woman has transgressed the law of God. You know, even their own conscience has been defiled. In in Titus, we see this clearly. He says, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Incredibly, the Bible goes on and it actually tells us that we can't even stand according to our own standard. We, We make our own laws, don't we? We, we say, oh, that person shouldn't have done this and that, and yet we do the same thing. We've got such short memories when it comes to our own sins, don't we? And the Bible actually declares that as true. Matter of fact, it goes back to Romans chapter 2. The first verse in Romans chapter 2 says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Didn't didn't our Lord say exactly the same thing? Didn't he say in in Matthew, he says, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Friends, it's not just God's law that we can't keep. We can't even keep our own. We We can't even stand against our own. Our own judgments, our own laws. The things that we invent. The Bible gives us an indication that we are going to be fully informed. At the time of death, our conscience will be fully informed. There'll be no, no quenching what's our, what we do with our conscience. And we put our conscience to death day by day by day. We have psychologists and psychoanalysts and all these people that are trying to remove your own guilt from you so you won't forget the bad stuff that you've done and just remember the good stuff. You know, we've got these classes of being able to, you know, um, edify yourself and, 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 and lift you up, you know, to make you feel good about yourself, which is, which is wonderful. But the only way to do that is to put aside anything wicked that you have done, anything that you've said that's wrong, etc., etc., and it goes on. 
Galatians chapter 3 says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Let me say that again. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. That's the key. And that's the key from which we take the rest of this message. That's the key from which, which we take the rest of this message. So the first point is the righteousness of God revealed now and witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But now, all of a sudden, we have hope now. One verse, two words, now we have hope. Now you've got a change. Now you've got the, the but, which gives you an indication there is a change of direction here. Something now is different. Okay, when? Now, but now, it says, and it gives us hope. We finished before with the, de- the, the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now all of a sudden there's got to be an element of excitement here, and there has to be, because if the law is there to condemn us, and we've broken the law and we can't use the same law to justify us when we've broken it, where are we left with? But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. All of a sudden, something's been set aside. Something's been set aside, not as far as completely set aside, but as far as it's not going to be the law that's going to justify you. But now the righteousness of God is going to be manifested. You're going to see how God is going to save you. You're going to see the answer that God has for you. Yeah, the the, the question of how to be just with God is not a new question. It's an ancient question. It's a very ancient question. Job makes mention of this. He says, I know it is of a truth... But how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him. One of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? A thousand years later. A a thousand years later, as the mind of man supposedly evolved, Aristotle had a very, very similar question. And he asks it this way. He says... I know it is for God, in his words, I know it is for deity, okay? I know it is for deity to forgive sins, but frankly, I do not see how. What's the problem that he's got? What's the problem that, in the mind of man, that God has? You see, God created the law. He also created the penalty that goes with the breaking of the law. The problem that God has now is that how does he now redeem a people who desire to repent and to turn back to the Lord when a debt has been incurred by their own sin? Okay, if, we, if we're going to be looking at that just through a normal, normal way of looking at it. Um, if a man was found guilty of murder, the just judge must pass sentence in direct accord with the law. If he should spare the man the restitution due, in other words, the penalty due, the cost of that crime is borne in full by the society in which the crime was committed. Therefore, justice is not served and the judge cannot be considered just or righteous. 
In fact, the very law itself is detrimentally affected. See, when a crime is committed within society, it has an effect upon the society. When a crime is committed, whether it's murder, whether it's theft, whether it's, you know, uh, anything, any crime that's been committed in a society, all of a sudden has a cost to that society. That's why when we speak about paying your dues, when we speak about people being in prison and they've paid their debt to society, it's what we understood historically as restitution. Okay? There is a cost associated with the crimes made in society. Okay? If that cost has been transferred, basically, when the person that's actually committed the crime doesn't pay the debt, that cost is then transferred back to the society from which it was taken. In other words, it manifests itself in a whole bunch of different ways. Someone's stolen something, then you lose the cost of it, but you also bear the injustice. Once you start bearing the injustice, crime starts to increase because they realise that there isn't going to be any justice. And all of a sudden, more and more and more gets borne by the society until, in the end, the entire society collapses. We have a very similar situation happening in Detroit in the United States at the moment. Everything has fallen apart over there. That entire society, because there hasn't been any justice made from the financial aspect of it, it has affected it all the way down the line. You've got a, you've got a city that is in, um, well, one commentator put it, it's a cultural collapse in Detroit at the moment. It's tragic. 79% of the children born there are born to single-parent families. It's a, it's a horrific state that they're in at the moment. The society has borne the cost of the crimes. We don't fully understand or comprehend the cost of our sin. We know that it was severe enough for God to send his own son to die on the cross for it. We know that it's severe enough to condemn you to eternity in hell forever. Forever, without any hope. We know that at least that is a serious cost. How does God justify man who deserves the penalty for his sin? That's the problem that Aristotle was wrestling with. That's the problem that Job was asking the question of. How can a man be just with God? How? How? We, we've, we've changed things in society today. Um, we've had such disrespect for the law. Our philosophical basis has now shifted. No longer are we focused on restitution. Today we're focused on rehabilitation. It's never been that way before. It's never been that way before. Thousands of years we understood it had to be restitution. In other words, there was a debt that needed to be paid. Okay? I mean, even the very, the very word that the Lord used on the cross to talisty was something that was stamped that it's been paid in full. The debt has been paid in full. It is finished is, what we, is how we have it translated. And it is complete, absolutely finished. So now we have the focus on rehabilitation, not restitution. It's a completely different focus. The end effect is exactly what we're seeing in society today. An increase in crime and everything like that, the society now is starting to pay for the debts incurred by those criminals. How is God going to be dealing with this? 
But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So we see that it's being witnessed by the law. We see that his justice and his goodness and his righteousness is witnessed by the law. There's going to be few people that are going to argue that the Ten Commandments aren't fair. Our entire legal system is based on it. Few people would argue that the Ten Commandments aren't fair, aren't right, aren't righteous. That's God's work. That's what he's done. But now it's being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now we have a historical basis. God's righteousness is linked with salvation, is witnessed by the prophets well before the coming of Christ. In Isaiah 46, chapter, verse 13, he says, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. What I want you to see is that God's righteousness is directly linked with salvation. That's why we have the text that about the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 51.8, he says, For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool, but my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. And this isn't something that was just for Israel. In Psalm 98, he says, And the Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. You have salvation and you have God's righteousness. Both of those two are interlinked. Salvation reveals that righteousness of God. And we're going to be seeing some interesting things. It says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, in Romans 1.17. The second point is that the righteousness of God is revealed by, his imputa- by its imputation through faith in Christ, imputation, big word. Have a look at verse 22. It says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. The righteousness of God is given unto all and upon all them that believe. It's only a hint of it here, and we'll deal with it a little bit more next week. But that the righteousness of God is imputed, it's actually... Once we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Saviour, his righteousness, God's righteousness, is then given to us. Two things have just happened. Remember, the law isn't enough to save us. The law can't do anything to save us. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But once we've accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour, the Bible teaches that his righteousness is then imputed to us. It's given to us. That's hard to imagine. I I find it difficult to, to understand. But as far as God is concerned, we have now his righteousness given to us. Again, it's not an old picture. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. Not only are our sins removed as far as the east is from the west, not only is is the sinner now declared as just by God, but now 
he is given and is clothed with the very righteousness of God. Isaiah 54, verse 17. Verse 17. Simply says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Move forward to 61, chapter 61, the same book, Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 10. And it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. God has clothed us with his righteousness. Those that are his, he has clothed with his righteousness. We see this from the very beginning. We see this from the time that Adam and Eve sinned. We see this from them. How did they try and clothe themselves? They try and clothe themselves with fig leaves because they were naked. God had decided, no, you are to be clothed with the skins. Why? Because he understood that it was only by the death of innocent blood that we should be covered. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. His blood that he shed on the cross because we believe in him and what he's done has covered us from all sin. The righteousness of God is now imputed to us. It's given to us. In Jeremiah chapter 23, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Who's that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. This is the name of our Lord. The very one that gave himself for us. This is his name. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Doesn't it make sense that if all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, nothing less than the righteousness of God can make up that shortcoming? How perfectly does does God's word reconcile itself here? Salvation offered to mankind reveals the righteousness of God. Also, that if God's righteousness is imputed to us, sin isn't imputed to us. You were in the book of Romans. Move forward to chapter 4 of Romans. So if God's righteousness is imputed to us, then you have to understand sin cannot be. Those two can't dwell together. Those two can't dwell together. In chapter 4 of Romans, have a look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Will not impute sin. 
What a joy. What a comfort that you can live in. What a comfort that you can live in, that my sins are now covered, that all he sees is the righteousness of Christ in me. Am I worthy of it? Hey, absolutely not. Did I do anything to merit it? No. Do I deserve it? No. Is there anything that I can do to earn it? No. God has given this freely because I have accepted the sacrifice of his son. That's it, guys. That's it. That's all I've done. And that's all that's required. And yet for some of you, for some of you, this is the most difficult thing in the world. Most difficult thing in the world. I, I, I preached a couple of weeks ago and I made, a message, I made a mention that salvation is not easy. And it, and it got a, a few people asking some questions because they all thought salvation was easy. Oh, brother, salvation is not easy. Simple. It's simple, but it's not easy. And that's testified by the fact that there's people here and in churches all across the world that hear the gospel time and time and time and time again and yet sit there holding on to their own sin, waiting for the day of judgment that they can tell God something. I would rather have their sin now than eternity forever. It's a testament that salvation is not easy. It's a testament that salvation is rejected by the entire world. The most simplest thing in the world. You're standing before the judge. You have committed whatever it is that you've committed. Are you guilty? Absolutely you're guilty. You know what the interesting thing is? Interesting thing is, as a Christian... I have the accuser of the brethren. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Anybody? Satan himself. What's Satan doing? He is the prosecuting attorney. And what he's doing at the moment is he is condemning me before my father, who also happens to be the judge. Okay? The prosecuting attorney is telling him everything that I've done. Is he right? 100%. 100%. I can't reject anything that Satan says about me. To be perfectly honest, I can't. Whatever he's prosecuting against me to the Father is true. I've committed them all. I've done it all. Whatever he says, it's true. But I have an advocate. My advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ, who the Bible says continues to make intercession for me. Why does he make intercession? Because he stands there and he says, This man is covered by my blood. He has accepted me for what he has done. He has accepted me. And you know, Father, that I have already paid the debt that he's owed. Restitution has been made by me, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think of this as far as an unbeliever now. Now the unbeliever is standing in the witness box, in the defence section, and he's standing there... Alone. Satan doesn't appear in the courtroom. Satan doesn't appear in the courtroom. The prosecuting attorney is Jesus Christ. Now Jesus is the prosecuting attorney. 
and you don't have any covering. You don't have anybody there to stand for you, to make intercession for you. You are standing there alone before a holy, righteous, perfect God. And you're there by yourself. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that every mouth will be closed. Every mouth will be shut. You won't be able to say a word. You won't be able to say a word. Your conscience will be fully informed. And you haven't accepted the free gift that God has given you. Is is salvation easy? Simple. Simple. Not easy. Next week we'll talk a little bit more about how God imputed his righteousness to us. The third point that I want to bring out is that the righteousness of God revealed by the perfect appeasement of his wrath. The perfect appeasement of his wrath. Read from verse 24 with me. It says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Salvation that's offered to man declares the righteousness of God. That's what it does. That God is angry with the wicked every day is identified in Scripture. In chapter 7 he says, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. We've got an interesting thing when we, when we talk to people and we sit there and say, you know, God loves you, you know, and he does. He sent his own son to die for you that you would have life. But we don't often tell them that God is angry with the wicked every day. You know, we, 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 we separate the sin from the sinner. We, we say God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But the problem with that is that both the sinner together with his sin is going to be cast into the lake of fire and is going to be there for all eternity and forever. The Bible teaches nowhere that the sinner is separated from his sin prior to conversion to Christ. Nowhere does it teach that. If you've ever told somebody that God loves the sinner but hates the sin, it's only true in part. That God loves the sinner is made evident by the very fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died for him on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved the world. That includes everybody in the world. 100% true. 100% true. I agree with that and fully accept it. Okay? The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. God loved me before I came to him. The Bible says that, <laughs> the Bible says that I was predestined before the foundation of the earth. That God already knew me before that he chose me before the foundation of the earth. Charles Spurgeon once said, I'm so happy that he chose me then because if he looked at me now, he might have changed his mind. True. 
True. Really happy about that. God loves everyone, no question. But to tell somebody and to give them some sort of comfort that God loves you but hates the sin, all of a sudden they're happy in their sin. Oh, well, if he loves me but hates the sin, then I'm good. I'm okay. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is angry with the wicked every day. For those who continue to reject the gospel of God and continue in sin, the Bible teaches that they continue to treasure up wrath unto the day of wrath. Every day, every moment, the fool who said in his own heart, there is no God, stores up wrath that will be poured out upon him on the day of God's vengeance at the inevitable judgment. For it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. If you're still in Romans, turn over to chapter 2. Because this is important to have a look at, that you would understand that God has anger. He has wrath. And there needs to be an appeasement of that wrath. And it has to be a perfect appeasement. It has to be settled. Chapter 2 just look from verse 3. He says, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? But it's amazing how many people actually think that they've made their plans good. You know? They actually believe that. They really think that my plans are good. My plans are right. I'm okay. You know what? I've got time. And when the time comes that I know that I'm going to die, then I'll have time and I'll accept Jesus Christ as my Saviour. In the meanwhile, I just want to live the life that I want to live because, hey, I'm enjoying it. You know, this is good. This deceptive mind that has no idea that death could happen at any moment, that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care. He doesn't care whether you're pretty doesn't care that you come from a wealthy family. doesn't care that your parents are godly or not. It is completely irrelevant to God. Your own sin can not only condemn you, but it can kill you. And you have no idea when that's going to happen. It's an amazing thing that, that, that no one knows when they will die. But everybody knows they will. Everybody knows they will. And they're not necessarily ready. Sorry, sorry, I just want just a thought that came to me. The Bible says, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Interesting, another passage says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. This is what the Bible teaches. Verse 4, sorry, in the same chapter, chapter 2, he says, Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This anger, this, this, this wrath of God that the Bible speaks about isn't going to be something that's going to be cast upon men here and now. This wrath and the fullness of it is going to be cast upon the wicked in hell. And for all eternity. Well, we, we can't stand when something bad happens to us here. How are we going to stand there? You know, and, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it stand to reason, doesn't it make sense that he was the one that gave his life for us, that he died in order that we would not spend an eternity in hell, 
that he would be the one that would have the loudest voice with respect to it? In the Bible, he speaks about hell more than any other individual in Scripture. There is nobody that warns about it as clearly, as precisely and as accurately as the Lord Jesus Christ does. Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Turn there if you want to turn there. That's, it's, a, it's an incredible passage of scripture, so much so that it's been distorted a lot in modern translations. Jesus speaks about things very, very particularly. He's quoting an aspect of this that was in the Old Testament. But this is how serious the Lord Jesus Christ actually takes the problem of sin within this world. And as much as he is sort of overdoing it a little bit, I don't think he actually is. I don't necessarily think he's being serious about us cutting off our hands. But he actually says, if that's able to keep you from sin, then do it. If that's able to keep you out of hell, then do it. Have a look in verse 43 of Mark chapter chapter 9. He says, and if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter in, halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. But now the righteousness of God is revealed by the perfect appeasement of his wrath. God is angry. Of that there's no question. But the Bible says here, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Anger, wrath, is that which must be perfectly appeased. And it's this that Christ has done. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Propitiation. One of the longest words in the Bible. Five syllables in that. Five, five syllables. Propitiation. I'm not sure there's too many names that are, or words that are bigger than that. There's that name, Pastor Steve. What was that name? Him, Shalal Hajbaz. That's probably that's probably a bigger one, and that's and that's poor Isaiah's son's name. Huh, what a name! Hey, imagine growing up with that one. Propitiation. What does it What does it mean? I'll give you a couple of synonyms. Appeasement, pacification, expiation, mollification. There's four. But you know none of these synonyms speak as clearly as propitiation does. Not one of them. God's wrath wasn't eased at all by appeasement. It was dealt with once and for all. God's anger wasn't merely pacified. It was satisfied completely. God wasn't mollified. He wasn't calmed down. The full case against mankind was settled in Christ. 
The full case against mankind was settled in Christ. And the text here says that he became it. He became a propitiation for us. That's where the depth of that word gives you so much hope. It's incredible. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ became for us. The righteousness of God was revealed in that he hath set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Brethren, the salvation offered mankind reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals it, and it reveals it perfectly. Fourth point, the righteousness of God revealed by man's absence from the work of salvation. I'll say that again. The righteousness of God is revealed by man's absence from the work of salvation. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the, of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Where is boasting then? Fair question. Where is boasting then? If God has done it all, where is boasting then? Well, it's excluded and it's excluded completely. We've just witnessed that all of mankind is condemned by the law of God, that none are righteous, no, not one. We've seen that the law cannot justify man. It can only condemn him. We've seen how God's righteousness is linked directly with salvation. And he has authored and witnessed it through history. We also have seen that in order to keep us and permit us everlasting fellowship, his own righteousness is given to us as a cloak that covers us. And just now we've understood that the righteous anger of God the wrath that no man will ever be able to satisfy and quench, it'll actually take all eternity in hell to do so, was perfectly satisfied by the death of his son. Through his blood, mankind can have remission of sins and have their debt paid in full if they will. And what we see in this text is that there can be no boasting. For nothing that you and I have done have merited salvation. We haven't earned eternity. We haven't discerned heaven or gained paradise because we were good enough. In fact, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. We, we, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You know, if God could not be righteous in how he saves man, he would never have done it. He would never have done it. If God could not retain his righteousness in the salvation of mankind, it would never have been done. If God's wrath could not be propitiated, we would remain in our sins. If God could not impute righteousness to us, we could never have access to heaven. And finally, if we had anything to do with our salvation... God's righteousness could not be manifest. And the glory which the Bible says he will not give to another, 
he will have to share. We were dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says. Dead in trespasses and sins. We were blind, completely blind. The Bible says that Satan hath blinded the eyes of the wicked. And he has. I have to tell you this, but I look around and I go from churches and, and I see people out there. You know what? Most people live in a bubble. They live in a little bubble, which they think is reality. Why a lot of people find it really uncomfortable to come to church, especially one that preaches the gospel, is because that bubble gets burst. Reality opens their eyes. And that's what the gospel does. It opens their eyes. We don't have anything to do with our salvation. Jesus says that no man can come to me lest the Father draw him. Our salvation is completely, perfectly, absolutely, totally the work of God. All we have to do is accept it. Easy? <laughs> Simple. Simple. At this stage, we've only got two options, all right? If, if we don't come to God on his terms, if God didn't declare his righteousness through salvation, then we're stuck. We, we've got a real problem at the moment. Either we can now live in a complete state of despair, maybe party or this and then the other, until death takes us and then all of a sudden we're cast into everlasting fire. Or, or we could go looking for the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? The tree of life was abandoned by our forefather. Okay, He had to run out from the tree of life. We can go looking for the tree of life. That way we can have everlasting life. We can do that. Let's do that. We don't have the Lord's righteousness. We want, it. We want our righteousness to all of a sudden jump in. We want to declare that there's something good about Eddie Judetti that deserves salvation. Okay, I laugh every time I say my name. Don't, don't you laugh too. You understand? So you've got a real problem. We need to go looking for the tree of life. There's only one problem with that is that God has set powerful angels gardening it with the tree of life. And he's also got a flaming sword that actually turns this way and that, which prevents us access. We're, we're, we're stuck. We're stuck. There's, there's nothing else now to look for other than complete utter and total despair. We don't have the comfort of God. We don't, have, we don't have salvation. We have what most of the world at the moment is staring right in the face. They all want to try and establish their own righteousness, but they won't ever get there. They can't, they can't use the law because the law condemns them. We've established that. God's anger and wrath needs to be propitiated. Well, the Bible says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In Galatians chapter 4, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, whosoever believeth, did I say that? Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. John 3.16 But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. Verse 28 of this text. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. This is the conclusion. This is the way. This is the tree of everlasting life. Our Lord Jesus Christ. It's found through faith. Faith and faith alone in the full and completed work of Jesus Christ. This and this alone can justify man. Will you believe? Will you believe that God has done what God has done for you? Will you accept the gift of God? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. The law is established because it's done its job. That's what's exciting about this. That's what brings all this back home. The law is established because it has done its job. It's brought us to a knowledge of our sin. It's spoken against us. It's condemned us and brought us to the realisation that eternal life is lost unless another would take our place and unless we would accept the transfer. John Bunyan in 1647 was, was um, they call it when they take you and they stick you in the army? Can't remember the word. Sorry? Inscripted. Well, he was commanded he needed to fight in the army. He was 19 years old. It was 1647 and there was a uh, uh, civil war happening in England at the time. There was a man, he was, one of his jobs at that particular time was he was to stand sentry, he was to walk sentry, he was to, to, to basically stand guard, walk up and down and making sure he would sound an alarm should something happen. He was to stand sentry. There was a man that asked him if he could take his place that particular night. And John Bunyan said, yes. The, the, the book doesn't indicate why or anything like that. Uh, the writing doesn't indicate it, but... The man wanted to take his place. And John Bunyan agreed and he said yes. During that very night, a musket ball struck him in the head and he died. He took John Bunyan's place. John Bunyan lived to write and write and write and write. He wrote so many incredible books. The Pilgrim's Progress is still to today known as Second to the Bible, the most translated book in history and the most circulated. Not many people read it today. It's a wonderful book. Charles Spurgeon used to read it, read it once a year. There's one at the back there. There's a few of them there. They're only about five bucks. It's worth reading them. John Bunyan had someone take his place. You have that same call. You have that same opportunity. You can have someone take your place if you haven't already. But this is the righteousness of God that's revealed. In closing, the last point that I have to ask, the last question that I have to ask, is how can we neglect so great a salvation? How can we neglect so great a salvation? 
Don't turn away from the safety and the comfort of knowing that you will no longer fear death. That no judgment shall ever again condemn you. The law is established through your faith in Christ. The law shall never again raise itself against you. For you would be justified by faith. Faith. Believing that the Christ has come and his work is done. For he came to seek and to save the that which was lost. That's, that's you and I. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And now we know, like Job, that our Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after, though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This is Job. Job understood it, knew it by faith. Believed it and he knew that his redeemer lived. He knew that he needed to be redeemed. And though perhaps he was looking forward to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew it and was saved by faith. Next week we'll see another man that was also saved by faith with the righteousness of God given to him. Job found the redeemer. He found the answer to the question. Remember, how can a man be just with God? A thousand years later, it doesn't seem that Aristotle ever found the answer to the question. Incredibly, by the time of Aristotle, the Old Testament was already finished. By the time of Aristotle, he should have known the answer. He's going to be held accountable to know the answer, but he was still searching. You have the answer. How are you going to neglect so great a salvation? How? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you, dear Lord, so much for the wonderful salvation, dear Lord, that you have offered to us, that you have demonstrated to us, that we can see, dear Lord, that the law itself, dear Father, the righteousness of God revealed, dear Lord, through and manifested by your law, your prophets, telling of old times, dear Father, that your righteousness is linked with salvation. We see, dear Father, also, dear Lord, that that righteousness can be imputed to us to ensure that we are saved and remain so for the rest of eternity, Father, that we are clothed with the righteousness of God. We see, dear Father, that your wrath has been fully and completely settled in our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and we see with all clarity also, dear Father, that we have nothing to do with our own salvation. I pray, dear Lord, that those who don't know you would come to you. But, Father, they need to come to you aright. They need to come to you with hearts in their hands, knowing, dear Father, that there will be a day of judgment. I ask you, dear Father, that you would bless them, that you would be with them, and that this word that we preach today, dear Father, would burn in them, dear Lord, until they come to a knowledge of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I pray, dear Lord, that we can be faithful as Christians, dear Lord, trusting in what you have done for us, dear Lord, in our lives, that we can share the gospel of grace to those that are around us, that people can see the wonderful joy that is possible and the hope and the comfort and the peace, dear Lord, that nothing, nothing can harm us and that all things work together for good to them that love God. I praise you for this church. I praise you for the congregation that's here. I ask you, dear Father, that your word would go out and not return to you, void. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.